You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your one-stop shop of independent conservative thought here at the conservative conscience. Not only your one-stop shop, but pretty much your only shop of independent conservative views on what really matters in this country and often in the world. It's late Thursday, a little bit later than I wanted to record today. June 27th, because as you know, God has a sense of humor here. He really does. Um, (laughs) Man, everything possible to throw at me is thrown at me. All of the work we have really edged towards the last number of years is culminating with everything going on, both at the border on immigration and in the courts and the tying together of the two. And when it rains, it pours. So, again, this is one of those weeks, you know, if, you, if you're if you bothered by the fact that I'm not covering something, I mean, look, send me a note. It's just, it's so hard. I can't even cover it between an hour on the air every day and as many articles as I can get out. Um, all the court cases, I wish they would stagger them more because when it rains, it pours. They just all come out. So crazy stuff going on. Um, we're going to jump right into it. We're going to start off with the courts. If there's time, we're going to go back to other news. Uh, I don't know if I'll have time, but boy, oh boy, are there lifelong lessons, lifelong lessons, 50 year debates over the courts, the role of the courts, the ability of conservatives to win the court game, the judicial casino. The answer to those questions are all being solidified in these days. Um, First off, I just want to say very clearly, or or, or first off, I do want to say, I'm going to tell you for the first time ever, don't listen to this show. Turn it right off if you haven't heard two other episodes. So what I want you to do is go ahead and go to episode 368. That was in March and episode 437, that was last Friday. And listen to those. In episode 368, I explain why Trump has no other choice but to begin pushing back against lower courts. Pick one or two issues. I explain why he has no choice and why he's going to suffer worse political harm if he allows the status quo to continue rather than just grabbing the bull by the horns. And episode 437 is really, I would say, almost a part one of what today's show is going to be, where I explained why we don't have a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, why it's worse than we think. And today, which is episode 441, will be just a broader overview of this term at the Supreme Court, why conservatives got slaughtered this term at the Supreme Court, particularly through the prism of today's ruling on the census and what it all means and where we go from here. So it's a tall order for one day, but let's let's unpack this. Now, right away, 
right away, I want to apologize to you guys and say, I always promise to not BS you and give it to you straight up, 100 proof, unadulterated, no uh, dancing around the issue. And I have to say, I violated my rule. The vision I've given over to you the last number of months about the courts actually, I think, has been too mealy-mouthed. And I'm here to tell you, the situation at the Supreme Court is actually worse than I thought. (laughs) It's worse than I thought. So in other words, I was giving the conservative... changes, the Trump judicial nominee appointments, the effect that they would have too much credit than it deserved. And I wasn't giving it much credit. And what I mean by that, to reiterate the thesis from Friday and to build on it today, the point I've been making until now is that, look, generally speaking, we have enough of a sane five judges on the Supreme Court that you're not going to have bad rulings emanate from them most of the time. But the point I was making was was twofold. Number one, they backhandedly refused to bring to grant appeal to our side to overturn the just unprecedented, outlandish lower court rulings on a num- number of issues, allowing the irrevocable harm of those decisions to percolate indefinitely. That's number one. And number two, even where they take it up. The they're going to overturn it too much, you know, and too too narrow of a of a of a purview, and it's going to be almost worthless because they're just going to come back with death by a thousand other lawsuits within a couple months and continue putting every last thing Trump does on hold. Now, I'm here to tell you. I'm here to tell you that, (sighs) see how to say this, (laughs) I mean, you're not going to like it, but every single applause line at a Trump rally on having a conservative court, it's just not true. It turns out we now have... On any given issue, no matter how egregious, no matter how harmful, no matter how disruptive to this administration's lawful powers of governance, the left more often than not this term had a five to four majority. Now, where they get that fifth vote depended on the issue, but they always seem to get it more often than they don't get it. So we downright have a majority on the Supreme Court giving bad rulings. After all this talk, holding open Garland's seat and blowing up the filibuster and the Kavanaugh thing, think about how much political capital we spent legitimizing, exalting, And expanding the premise, the specter of the power and importance of judicial supremacy only to lose in that casino 
rather than delegitimizing the judicial casino game to begin with. We could have spent less capital on it and we could have solved this problem much easier. Okay? We could have solved the problem um, right, right like that. Right like that. But we didn't. So we everything lies in ruins. So before we get into what happened today, just want to say that Jonathan Adler, he's a, a professor of law at Case Western University, big libertarian guy. You know, we don't agree on many things. But he put out on Twitter yesterday, in fact, thus far, there are more cases, seven to be exact, in which four liberal justices got a fifth vote for five to four win then five to four cases in which conservatives stuck together, six. Now, that was as of yesterday. As of today, you're going to see there was one where conservatives had five to four, one where liberals did. So I think rather than seven to six, it's like eight to seven. I could be wrong because there were a couple other cases released. And given the two biggies, I just didn't have time. I just didn't have time. But that's just an interesting fact I want you to understand. That aside from the fact that numerous, 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 dozens upon dozens of the most harmful lower court cases go unrivaled. Aside from the fact that even when we do win, it's too narrow and it doesn't matter anyway. But even in absolute terms, there's actually more times where the left has the critical fifth vote than our side has the critical fifth vote. After all of this... Come on, baby. You could tell me I'm right. <laughs> boy, boy, were we right about this, uh, about our thesis on the courts. But more, more, more specifically to what went on. So, so there's two cases. There's the redistricting case. That's uh, Rucho v. Common Cause in North Carolina. And um, the, the census case, Department of Commerce v. New York. So today was a very, it was like an emotional roller coaster. It was an emotional roller coaster. First, we win one and then we lose one. So for the first 15 minutes of SCOTUS o'clock at 10 o'clock, you know, we were on a, I was, I was pretty giddy. I was in a good mood. But then once we had the bad ruling of the census, and then I went back and read one line in particular from the opinion in redistricting and again chief justice roberts wrote both of them of course coupled with everything else we've observed until now about this term in the court and really the courts in general and the lower courts in general demonstrates the headline of my article today and that is the upshot of the scotus term as today's rulings is the judiciary is god except for in one rare circumstance so what's that first let's go with the good news the rare circumstance and we'll explain why it's rare and why it's so limited and so overshadowed by the bad news and i know i know i'm always the guy to tell you it's bad and and really like i was gonna come on here all giddy about the redistricting case but i'm just telling you the truth you'll understand why roberts was good on that when you understand why we was bad on the other things. So 
three districting case, they packaged two cases together. Now, let's be very clear. When I say we and winning, I don't mean we as conservatives winning conservative policy outcomes. To me, this is not about a, a conservative political outcome, right? One case in Maryland was a Democrat gerrymander. One case in North Carolina was a Republican gerrymander. So it was neutral. To me, the win is, as originalists, who believe in holding the judicial branch of government to the power that was given it in the Constitution at the time of our founding, the victory that you want is that the courts have no role to get involved in redistricting. And surprisingly, but if you really understand that, it isn't so surprising, we got what we wanted on that case. We got what we wanted. Now, let me just say to begin with, I live in Maryland's third congressional district. That is, you could Google it, it's the most gerrymandered district in the United States of America. I am on the losing side of that issue, that political issue, because it cuts against conservatives. You lose your power that way. Democrats gain extra seats. Okay? And... It's painful watching how Western Maryland, which has always had its own representative for so long, is now spliced together with the D.C. outgrowth, which is just antithetical to it. It's different demographically. It's different geographically, topographically, um, politically, certainly. I mean, everything you would imagine, just culturally, is just very different. Not only is it a diametrically opposed part of the state, but really... When you're talking about that part of Maryland, it's not even Maryland. It's it's uh, national. It's just you have all the transplants that are working in D.C. from all over the country. So it's it's um, it's egregious to to put them in there. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, forget about redistricting for a minute. The politics of redistricting. I don't want to get involved in that so much. But at the end of the day. Do courts have veto power over political decisions or not? Well, let's see. Congress passes a law. A president could veto it or sign it. But once he signs it, it is the law. And then every subsequent president has to abide and execute that law. Now, you look at a state level, it's the same thing. State legislature passes a law. Governor could sign or veto it. Once it's signed, you know, that's the law. There's no extra clause in the Constitution. Oh, no, no, stop. Wait, wait, wait. Now it goes to the courts to be ratified or vetoed or struck down. No, no, no. There's no such thing. The avenue that the courts have to somewhat get involved in policy, politics, certain things is that if I have an individualized complaint that government is taking away my life, liberty, and property, a fundamental right, I could say, look, you know, um, this is not right. Uh, I I have a claim. I have the right to go to court. A court looks at, all right, well, um, what does the law say? So that's number the first question. What does the law say? Well, the law doesn't say that. So why why are they doing? Why is the executive branch doing it? So you don't have to do it. I'll, I'll grant you relief. Or if the law does say it, Marshall's point in in Marbury versus Madison is to say, look, 
all things equal, they should just implement the law. The court should say, look, you, you have to pay, you're convicted or you're whatever. But if it's manifestly repugnant to the plain meaning of the Constitution, the way we knew it, like an ex post facto law, then look, I have to tell them that, look, you know, as a judge, John Smith, you 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 have a proper claim here because the ultimate law is the Constitution and, and they can't do this. But there's no veto of laws. So you have to have an individualized claim. If there's anything that's the antithesis of individualized, it is decisions over drawing election maps. There's no, if you're going to tell me that it's a justiciable issue that could be solved by the courts and that, that an individuals could get standing, there's nothing that can't go to the courts. Okay, so that, that this was an obvious case. The only thing worse than a political gerrymander is a judicial gerrymander. And again, the, the, the historical record is clear. It was named after Gary, one of the founders, G-E-R-R-Y, from Massachusetts. It was done by all of them. They talked about it all the time. It would be novel. You would be overturning our entire history. And indeed, in a moment of rare clarity, that's exactly what Robert said. Right, straight up, there weren't there was no fragmentation, just straight up Roberts and the four other Republican appointees, no other concurrences, just one majority, and then one dissent by Kagan, joined by the three other Democrat appointees. It was a straight up, just total moment of clarity where Roberts went through the history, like, look, we did this all the time. Um, You know, it was known, it was in the colonial times. And he said very clearly that there's, there's no role for the courts to get involved with. Right, just very straight, very straight out. So um, we were like, oh my gosh. You know, and, and he actually talked about the role of the courts. This is a classic kind of Roberts type of line where he said, look, Chief Justice Marshall famously wrote that it is the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Sometimes, however, the law is that the judicial branch has no business entertaining the claim of unlawfulness because the question is entrusted to one of the political branches or involves no judicially enforceable rights. Beautiful, right? I mean, that's what Robert said. Like, aha, this was the perfect time to shake hands because the left is kind of going nuts with this ruling, but they should realize, I mean, Maryland was their biggest gain from it. I mean, it's it's. The truth be told, Democrats gerrymander a lot more because Republicans don't need to because naturally, natural boundaries most of the time benefit Republicans more just because the black vote is more clustered, is more, is more, um, you know, it's more clustered together. So natural boundaries you confine. Democrats are the ones who want to do scattershot in most areas. So this would be the first time to say, look, let's just shake on it. Fundamental political issues, let's keep out of the courts. And that should apply for other election laws. 
that aren't just straight up, I was, me, John Smith, I was denied the vote. So take up my case. Just policies, times, methods, procedures of elections, border policy. This would have been a great watershed moment to begin moving in that direction. And it was just amazing. You know, you look at this thing and, and, and it was very categorical. It's like, look, our whole history is replete with this. There's no way you could come later on and say everything we've been doing, including the founders, you know, was unconstitutional. And that's it. Um, you know, he had to add in his nonsense, like the conclusion that partisan gerrymandering claims are not justiciable, neither condones excessive partisan gerrymandering nor condemns complaints about districting uh, to echo into a void. You know, but whatever. I mean, he vacated the lower court opinions and that's it. And again, do, do you understand all this means is that, you know, who's going to decide the state courts, which they're more familiar with the boundaries and it makes more sense. So, I mean, everyone should agree to this. It's, it's really very simple. It's very, very simple. Now, the problem is there was one little piece at the very end of Robert's opinion where he kind of hinted that, no, this is not a change in his behavior fundamentally. This is to segue into the census case. He ended off and said, no one can accuse this court of having a crabbed view of the reach of its competence, <laughs> right? Meaning because they get involved in everything. But we have no commission to allocate political power and influence in the absence of a constitutional directive or legal standards to guide us in the exercise of such authority. It is, And then he quotes again Marbury, it is emphatically the province of, and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. In this rare circumstance, that means our duty is to say this is not the law. Notice he says rare. The reason why this is a once-in-a-lifetime case is very simple. Because the thing that the other side could never articulate is what is it you do? See, you know, you want to say strike down the map, but but then the, the, the problem with that always was is that then what what do you do? That would mean that the courts have to literally handwrite the map. So what standard do they use? We all know Maryland's map is unfair. I didn't, I didn't use the word unconstitutional. It's unfair. But what is fair? Well, gee, every political party, you're going to want to make it more beneficial to you. Where do you draw the line? There was no standard. So the point is, and, and you're going to see this point is very significant because it has bearings on strategy for the Trump administration that I'm going to advise them on in the future. Roberts, when Roberts' back is against the wall, more as much as I think as I can't stand him, as much as he's a problem, and he'll continue to be a problem, but when his back is against the wall and he has no wiggle room, more times than not, not always, he will have to go with what he knows is the Constitution. In his heart, he still knows this is garbage. I mean, heck, everyone remembers him from the Reagan administration when he was the one who wrote the jurisdiction stripping memo uh, to advocate kicking the courts out of abortion and, you know, school busing. 
issues. So he, there, there was nothing for him to do. This was a categorical, dramatic case. There was no mealy mouth. It was a very easy case. It's easy for a non-legal person to read. It's not like very naughty of five different statutes and how do they interplay? No, no, it's straight up. I mean, you know, lower courts have been screwing with, ah, this map's not good, this map's not good. Finally, the way these two cases came to the court, it came to the court in a question of like straight up. All right, what are we going to do here? Is this a justiciable issue or not? Fundamentally, is there an individual claim that you could sue a map? Now, there's no doubt in my mind that Roberts would have had no problem saying yes, as you're going to see in a minute, that we can get involved. But get involved in what? There was no answer. See, typically what the court just does is they just veto. Nope, you can't do this. You can't hold family units. You can't secure the border. You can't, you can't deny gay marriage license to gay couples. Right? It's, it's kind of like a one-off. Here, it's like, you can't. Okay, so then what do I draw? That, that, that's the problem here. He had no other option. Now, obviously, the four other liberals want to bellyache about it, but even in their dissent, they don't have any intelligent way of explaining what exactly you would do other than virtue signal of how important it is to get involved. Fine, but then how? That's why Robert said this was rare. Which brings us to the census case. So while I was dancing on the table, 15 minutes later, the census case comes out. And it's worse than I ever thought. So remember, I told you, I said that my fear was, and some people were even talking about this, that that there would be a clean sweep at the Supreme Court where conservatives would win every case. And my fear was that my, my, my fear was that, you know, we would all jump on the roof and, and continue, you know, not fighting judicial supremacy and being lulled into a false sense of security when, in fact, A, they're narrow, and B, like I said before, you know, what about all the c- cases they allow to stand, the shadow docket of the courts, what you don't see, but I was wrong. We have lost a number of criminal cases. Um... And uh, and then there's the census case. Now, what's amazing how they came out 15 minutes apart is that the cases track so closely. It It's fundamentally a political question. I'm drawing maps. It even ties into drawing maps, right? Census ultimately is the first step in redrawing maps for that decade. What questions am I going to ask on a survey? I'm not beating you up. I'm not hurting you. I'm not, there's nothing, I'm, I'm asking a question. Okay? The notion that a court could tell the Department of Commerce, the Census Bureau, you can't put that on is absurd. It's not justiciable. It's the same point. It's unbelievable. It's the same point. That Roberts just recognized. Literally. Literally the same point. Moreover, the same idea that it's deeply rooted in our entire history. 
from 1840, really 1820, until, until Obama. Until 2010, it was asked in some form on part of the census. And it, it's just like, it's the foundation. I mean, it's the most, we ask race and ethnicity and, and, and origin and I mean, all sorts of stuff, which means nothing. The census is, the, the citizenship is really how many citizens do we have per area? It makes a huge difference in how you want to draw the lines. Not just for the federal stuff, but the state districts. This is where most of them are going to get their data from. And indeed, it's eerie. Roberts literally wrote almost the same line in, in both cases. In the redistricting case, he said, history is not irrelevant. The framers were aware of electoral districting problems and considered what to do about them. And, and he goes on to say, and they settled on, you know, leaving up to the political bodies. In the census case, he says, too, yeah, history, absolutely, we've done this. And he, and he quotes Scalia in a case saying, our interpretation of the Constitution is guided by government practice. Meaning, in this case, the citizenship question, that quote, has been open, widespread, and unchallenged since the early days of the Republic. So you're like, oh, so then Roberts is going to be with us. Da-da-da-da. Roberts pulls an Obamacare, an NFIB Sibelius. Classic Roberts. Classic Roberts game-playing. Perfect Roberts game-playing. You got to love the guy. So he admits there is no um, constitutional problem with it. He admits it's deeply rooted in history and tradition. Has a very clear purpose. He admits there's no statute saying otherwise. I mean, in fact, a lot of people forget the statute itself actually um, actually says very clearly, 13 U.S.C. 221, that you have to ask any question the census will ask you, and if you don't, there's a fine of $100. The only question walled off is religion. It spells it out, so it's very clear that you know you could ask citizenship. And and he and and then even on the next point. So what's the next thing they've been doing? They've been saying you didn't issue a proper APA, you didn't issue a proper go through the proper administrative procedure act. Right, you have the authority to do it, but there's a process under the APA of how you promulgate new policies and regulations. You never, he didn't even do that. He was like, no, it's not arbitrary and capricious. But he goes and says, the reason you particularly gave Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, that I don't like. You have the power to do it, but I think you're BSing me. I don't think you're giving me the real reason. Think about that. You have the power to do it. Whatever the reason is, you could do it, but I'm going to send this back to the lower courts and allow them to continue blocking you and relitigate this because it's pretextual. The real reason for his decision, quote, was something other than the sole reason to put forward in his memorandum, namely enhancement of DOJ's VRA, Voting Rights Act, enforcement efforts. So, um, yeah. As Justice Thomas said mockingly of Roberts in his dissent, Thomas said in his dissent, 
He said, according to the court, something just seems wrong. Right. That, that's basically. So this is classic. This is what Robert says all the time when he's backed into a corner, but he has a wiggle room. And I'm going to explain how the administration gave him that wiggle room. He uses the wiggle. So he's like, you know, it, Roberts has done this a number of times. He starts an opinion and it sounds like, you know, the conservative opinion. And then he's just like, veers off like, whoa, wait, whoa, where did that come from? Like two plus two equals 11. Oh, whoa. Okay. So it was just a bizarre opinion. Now it was, it was a plurality because Breyer and some of the liberals would have gone even farther. They didn't like that, you know, Roberts wrapped himself up, but the controlling majority here would be on this. So the amazing thing is what happened to Roberts saying this is not justiciable. There's no individualized grievance. It's a fundamental political question. It's been there forever. It's been unchallenged. He didn't even violate the APA, according to him. How in the world do you have standing? But alas, even when we can get Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Alito with Thomas, as we had in this case, and Alito was amazing here, we lose Roberts. They always get their fifth vote. Now, obviously, this is a big deal. This is a big deal that we now have the Supreme Court saying that the lower courts can go ahead and screw with the census question. That even in this late hour, they could go and demand that Trump not put the citizenship question in. And and genuinely, I am even shocked. I am shocked. I use this as an example of something that, yeah, you know, they're not going to... This much the Supreme Court's not going to bite. And the left got a fifth vote. What a joke. What a joke. Completely unbelievable. So that in itself is is going to is very problematic. Um you know, the lower courts are going to have a field day with this. And it's going to take forever. We're going to, they're going to lose again on remand and they're going to have to appeal against the Supreme Court. We'll see what happens there. There's something a lot more important here going on. There's something a lot more important going on here. This is not just about the census. What Roberts did here is fundamental to all the cases that are going on. It's fundamental to this problem we have. What's the problem we have? That no matter what the Trump administration does, no matter how lawful, no matter how common sense, no matter how common, just a basic governmental action pursuant to law, pursuant to the Constitution, no matter how long it was there, Obama implements a policy, Trump merely gets rid of it, goes back to the way it was before Obama, which is the case here in the census, but many other cases. Immigration, of all these cases, think along the lines of all the cases on immigration and the border we've been talking about. The lower courts come in with this novel idea that that that, that we have the ability to, to change the trajectory of critical decision-making processes by the executive branch on very volatile issues and that their word, any forum shop judge at any time 
is self-executing on the other branches. It's final, binding on them. It's instantaneous. And there's nothing we can do about it. No matter the standing, no matter the merits, just any time. Well, Daniel, you have to wait till the appeal. Well, it's like, okay, lawsuit. Trump is not allowed to pass gas in the Oval Office. Well, Daniel, it's 50-50. I don't know. Make candy or candy. Let's see the court. You know, don't prejudge. And then the court says he can. Well, look, you got to appeal. What? Meaning, we always said that the, the slippery slope of judicial supremacy is there's got to be a point where you would say there's there's no way they're, they're they're the final say because then literally we don't live in a republic. See, what's the worst that could happen with the opposite? Let's say the executive branch is too unbridled and does an action that's that is lawless. Well, Congress could go after them. It's not like binding. Congress could go after them. And you have elections. If it's really that bad, I mean, that's going to be a big issue in the election. I'm not saying executive branches should violate the law. And I'm not saying when they do and there is a legitimate standing, and that's a big if, depending on the case, that you can't use the courts as one avenue to kind of bring political pressure against them. But you understand that in worst case scenario, it's not that big of a deal. Whereas with the courts, you have no country left if you err on the side of judicial supremacy. So what happens here is this was the problem going on all over that Trump promulgates a regulation. Often it's nothing but merely countermanding what Obama did and returning to base law. Remember, you, you, some of you might say, oh, just don't do anything. I don't like governing. Don't do stuff. Well, the problem is that for years, a big part of the issue is that executive branches, and certainly we see this on immigration, they have not been following the law. So just to get us back to base law, base statute, you need a change in policy. And the problem is that at any moment... The lower courts could just give standing where where there shouldn't be standing, where where there's no prima facie constitutional or statutory violation, and just say, you're a racist. I don't like your pretext. You have some nefarious reasons here. We can't let you do it. Right? That has been the story, essentially, of the last two and a half years, and that is clearly what has led to the invasion of our country. I mean, the harm from the immigration decisions are just unfathomable, and we've chronicled this with endless hours of talk and and articles and reporting. We needed a court to rein that in and rebuke them emphatically. We were concerned that they weren't going to properly and categorically rebuke him. But instead, John Roberts takes that and he steps on the gas pedal. His whole thing is, yeah, you can now take, this has nothing to do with the census. Apply this in all the other cases and they're saying this in all the other cases. Anything they do, go down the department, go down the agency, go down the list of policies that you want Trump to do that are totally not novel. Just reinstating pre-Obama stuff. And there's always a racial element you could throw in there. What do you think DACA is to this day? He invented an amnesty. We just say, get rid of it. They're like, no, you didn't give me good reason. I don't like your reason. Taking this entire term together, 
as a whole, looking at what the courts did and didn't do, what the Supreme Court took up and the cases they did take up and what the majority said. Ask yourself this question. Are these radical lower court judges, do they feel pressure and rebuke? Hey, I better kind of tread you know, more thinly here. Or are they even more emboldened? And that's what Thomas, both Thomas and Alito were alluding to that point in their dissents. That, um, where is this? You know, let me, let me just look at, at Alito. And, and by the way, you should read his whole opinion, just the history he writes, um, You know, asking about citizenship on the census also has a rich history in our country. Every census from the first in 1790 to the most recent 2010 has sought not just a count of the number of inhabitants, but also varying amounts of additional demographic information. Um, he cites a letter from Jefferson in 1800 saying that um, census questions regarding, quote, the respective numbers of native citizens, citizens of foreign birth and of aliens for the purpose of more exact distinguishing the increase of population by birth and by immigration. In 1820, he cites John Quincy Adams, Secretary of State. Back then, the State Department did the census, instructing the marshals who were in charge with gathering information to ask about citizenship. Um... And then he says, now for the first time, this court has seen fit to claim a role with respect to the inclusion of a citizenship question on the census. And in doing so, the court has set a dangerous precedent, both with regard to the census itself and with regard to judicial review of all other executive agency actions. He goes on to say, if this case is taken as a model, then any one of the approximately 1,000 district court judges in this country upon receiving information that a controversial agency decision might have been motivated by some unstated consideration, may order the questioning of cabinet officers and other high-ranking executive branch officials, and the judge may then pass judgment on whether the decision was pretextual. What Bismarck is reputed to have said about laws and sausages comes to mind, and that goes for decision-making by all three branches. To put the point bluntly, the federal judiciary has no authority to stick its nose into the question whether it is good policy to include a citizenship question on the census or whether the reasons given by Secretary Ross for that decision were his only reasons or his real reasons. So this is what we need five justices saying on every issue. Instead... We have four saying it on this one. Often we only have one or two or three. And we almost never, ever have five. Straight up, you have no, there is no role. And the irony is Robert said this on the redistricting case. It's amazing. You have no role. Thomas really also got to the point of what is going to come out from this, this opinion. Um, you know, all the harm that's going to come out. Now, he, just like Alito indicates, he doesn't say it as definitively, he indicates that, you know, who says that anyone should be able to bring an APA standing, standing for an APA violation anyway. 
But even Roberts said it didn't violate it ultimately. But likely he agrees with Alito on that point that there is no way to litigate against that. Um, but anyway, he also predicted this very exact dynamic. Thomas is clearly, clearly, clearly paying attention to what is going on here. Clearly paying attention to this. The court's erroneous decision in this case is bad enough as it unjustifiably interferes with the 2020 census. But the implications of today's decision are broader. With today's decision, the court has opened a Pandora's box of pretext-based challenges in administrative law. Today's decision marks the first time the court has ever invalidated an agency action as pretext, pretextual. Having taken that step, one thing is certain. This will not be the last time it is asked to do so. Virtually every significant agency action is vulnerable to the kinds of allegations to the court, the court credits today. These decisions regularly involve coordination with numerous stakeholders and agencies, involvement at the highest levels of the executive branch, opposition from reluctant agency staff, and perhaps, mo- mo- perhaps most importantly, persons who stand to gain from the action's demise. Opponents of future executive actions can be expected to make full use of the court's new approach. Notice he added that in um, reluctant agency staff because notice there was just U.S. the USCIS union. So the um, ICE and Border Patrol unions are generally pro-enforcement. The USCIS union is all about open borders. So they're suing the administration. Do you imagine that? USCIS guys are suing the administration on, you know, guidance on, on, a, on credible fear claims. Thomas is paying attention to what we've been paying attention to. He sees this coming. It's already, ha- it's, it's happening every day. But you see what I'm saying? It's not just, oh, Robert screwed us on the census case. It's a bad ruling. It's on the, he, he, he poured lighter fluid on the, on the essence of the fire that's taking place in the judiciary. The notion that anything Trump does could invite an unprecedented litigation to get standing and actually win. And for those of you who think that someday we could use this against a Democrat president, you know the one-way street and dead-end ratchet. You know that nine times out of ten, one, one time, one out of ten, you'll benefit from it. Nine times out of ten, they'll throw it out. Even if it actually is lawless and against the Constitution. I say this all the time. The funny thing is the one thing that Trump did that actually violates both statute and the Constitution in the most foundational ways, retroactively categorizing previously purchased um, bump stocks as felonies and contraband and, and designating it as a machine gun, violating statute, violating the Second Amendment, violating... Ex post facto, violating the takings clause. And that, that's the most individualized thing. You're making an individual criminal and you're taking away his property. I mean, that that's straight up. I mean, that is, you know, if there's ever a role for a court to give it a judgment to an individual and say, look, you, you could have a bump stock. That's the case. And of course, the Supreme Court declined to take it. <laughs> I mean, even a broken clock is right twice. A broken John Roberts is right in just one, quote, rare circumstance. 
in the redistricting case. You know, man, this this is unbelievable. Thomas goes on to explain, under the malleable standard applied by the court today, a serious case could be made that the open internet order, well, you know, I'm sorry, let me let me just skip down. That's, um, I don't want to get into, I don't have time to get into that point. You could read his dissent. Next paragraph. Now that the court has opened up this avenue of attack, opponents of executive actions have strong incentives to craft narratives that would derail them. Moreover, even if the effort to invalidate the action is ultimately unsuccessful, the court's decision enables partisans to use the courts to harangue executive officers through depositions, discovery, delay, and distraction. The court's decision could even implicate separation of powers concerns insofar as it enables judicial interference with enforcement of the laws. Meaning just straight up anything like, you know, nothing novel, nothing new, not a new like executive order, just straight up any law, any last action that's just black and white. I mean, you know, just implementing basic laws of the country. The left is concocting novel and radical things every day. They'll say, I don't like that. That's racist. There's no end. So and this leads me to the final point. What does Trump do? You have no choice. I understand. I mean, I didn't agree because we're we're smarter than they are, these stupid lawyers in the administration. But I understand that they thought, look, we got Gorsuch, we got Kavanaugh. We didn't just fill Scalia's seat, but we turned over uh, um, Kennedy. We're making all these lower court things. All right, let's just be patient when this is going to change. It's Even they have to see it's not. On the very point that they're using to assail the administration, they have no choice but to assert separation of powers. The bottom line in this case is, as I always said, a lot of people ask me, hey, Daniel, are you saying that, you know, the Trump administration should, should, um, go the Andrew Jackson route. And what I always tell people is, no, it's the courts that are going the Andrew Jackson route. They're the ones defying. They're the ones engaging in civil disobedience. Meaning, it's straight up, except the difference is they don't have the will or power, force nor will, to to implement it. I say this all the time. Look, we've gotten clobbered this term on criminal law cases. We're going to have every freaking rapist, murderer, and and kitty porn guy out on the streets before you know it between Gorsuch and and the four liberals. But as much as I disagree with those cases, I agree that fundamentally convicting someone in individual conviction in criminal law is the province of the judicial branch to convict someone. So they don't want to convict someone. But when it comes to questions of the border, of visas, of writing a census, a court doesn't write a census. That's not judicial power. That's executive power. A court could give standing in a case to issue an opinion and say, I think you should do this. But that's not their power. And if the and if the other branches of government, this case, the executive branch, knows the Constitution says the other opposite. And in this case, a majority of the court said that the Constitution and the law 
say he has authority to do it. Right. So it's not even like you're disagreeing. Like the court says there's a constitutional right to something, you know, to abortion, whatever. It's they're not saying that. And certainly not five of the not Roberts. Trump needs to ask the question. Now, here's what comes into into matter. 13 USC 221 says if you don't answer the question, you could get fined $100. So that you have to go in front of a court. And if you want to levy a fine, the court could say, oh, no, I don't think you have to pay because I, I don't like that question. Even if they're wrong, that that's the way the judicial branch pushes back against the executive branch. But you see what I mean? But you can't stop the executive branch from putting it on the survey. Just like a court doesn't write a map. Draw a map. They don't write a census. So even if they have standing, which in this case they shouldn't, to render a judgment, they might be right on the judgment, they might be wrong on the judgment, but that is not judicial power. Trump needs to push back. That's obvious. I actually think the border is a better way of doing this. But there's one other point I want to bring up today that might almost sound like I'm reversing what I said, almost defending Roberts or excusing Roberts. I'm of course not. But there is one important thing to know. I've noted before that not only is this administration not pushing back against the courts, they're not even fully, meaning pushing back against judicial supremacy, they're not even aggressively playing the judicial litigation game as aggressively as they can. They're not crafting their depositions and their arguments in the most categorical terms. They're too mealy-mouthed, and by making it mealy-mouthed, they're inviting mealy-mouthed rulings from John Roberts. Remember, I talked about at the beginning of the show, when he has no way out, if you create a dramatic categorical constitutional question in front of him, he can't weasel out of it. Hence the um, redistricting case, hence Trump v. Hawaii in the so-called travel ban. He would downright have to say the president doesn't have such power. He couldn't do that. Couldn't do that. But in a lot of these cases, they twist themselves into pretzels. They've never, like on immigration, they've never gone before the courts in all these cases with the asylees and bogus asylees and the caravans just saying straight up 1182F. Straight up. I'm calling for a shutoff. It's the same thing with DACA. As much as the court's wrong and as much as John Roberts is wrong for not reversing it, And again, like Alito says today, very ably, none of this should be subject to the APA, these type of presidential actions. But still, still, it is somewhat the administration's fault because they're very mealy-mouthed. They get very guilty about... So, look, I agree you should never have to give a reason satisfactory to the courts to do something lawful, as Alito says, but out. 100% right. 
And I would tell the courts to butt out, but this administration sucks and they're not telling the courts to butt out because they're too scared. So what I'm telling them is, okay, I'm, I'm working on your ground. So the next best thing to do is to categorically and consistently assert at least your rightful powers. Instead, they're like the father that comes in the room and finds the kid up at 11, 30, 12 at night. And really, the kid was totally studying for homework. He had a big test the next day and could have just turned to the father. Yeah, you know, I'm staying up a little late just because, I mean, I have a really tough test tomorrow. Instead, he like jumps out of his chair, looks like he's on drugs, gets all guilty, mumbles incoherent things contradicting himself. And the father's like, hey, what the hell is going on? I don't like what I see here. And that's kind of what Roberts is doing. Again, he doesn't have the power to do that. Screw off, butt out. But that's what they did with DACA. They should have just said, it's unconstitutional. Um, You know, the president uh, invented it. Obama invented it. And I have the power to reverse it. Only Congress could grant legal authority. I don't want to do this. At the end of the day, you cannot give rights to to foreign nationals over Americans. Congress has to vote on that. Instead, they're like, well, we get the impression that the Fifth Circuit might made a, make us do this. Well, the Fifth Circuit didn't do it yet. So what you like they, they, and, and part of that is because they really like DACA. I mean, some of you might have seen the video of Trump re- this week. Oh, the dreamers, the dreamers. So it's the same thing here with Wilbur Ross and, and the Trump administration. Everyone knows what they're doing. The point is not a citizenship question. The point is, we know how many citizens, so therefore we don't count illegal aliens in the census. Very simple. Just say it. Instead, they're like, well, you see, um, you don't understand. The Voting Rights Act tells us to make sure we have majority-minority districts, so we have to know how many citizens there are, to know how many minorities there are. It helps us enforce it, but then they have all sorts of things saying more along along the lines of what I'm saying. So like, hey, really, you will, hey, you know, you're racist in this, and they twist themselves up into a pretzel. If they just would have come in and said, look, the most basic thing, I mean, look at Alito's opinion. Why didn't Trump assert that and write that? They they didn't. They twisted themselves up again. Even if you give a stupid reason, it still doesn't shouldn't invite this. I agree. But if you're going to game out Roberts and play his game rather than sideline him as I think they should do, you're not you're stupid. You're not even gaming it out properly. They think by being more mealy-mouthed, they're going to get away with the courts more. It's not true. You have to be more categorical. It's like I said with expedited removal. Just assert every illegal who comes here unless they can prove within that they've been here for two consecutive years, you are out without any review. That is the law passed unanimously by the Senate in 1996. Roberts would downright have to say the entire 1996 law passed unanimously dealing with the sovereignty of the American people is unconstitutional. I really doubt even with as down as I am on him that he would do that. Sometimes the more categorical approach is the better way to go. It also, it also, the American people understand that better. It's like they get all weird on things and then they just twist themselves up. This is the problem with these stupid lawyers in the, in the White House and Justice Department, DHS, 
Commerce Department. They just don't get it. You got to call your shot and put the courts on notice. Straight up. You're going to tell me that people could invade this country? Could an invading army come in with guns and then we have to count them? If we're counting the census then? Literally. If you have, you know, Olympics going on in one part of the country, like the International Olympics during the census. So you have a bunch of Americans travel to that city to view the Olympics. Are you going to count them as a member of that state? They're American citizens. No. So certainly people, illegal aliens, just straight up. They give, this is the problem. They give Roberts more wiggle room. That is the issue. But look, folks, what is very clear, the outcome of this term at the court, no major liberal doctrine has been overturned. You know, you've intermittently had one, two, or three justices willing to do that in certain issues. Never five. We won a couple of narrow defensive victories on things that should have never been in the courts. We've gotten slaughtered on criminal law because of Gorsuch. Um, every last immigration thing of the lower courts is still standing. And now we can't even get to the point of asking a citizenship question, much less discounting illegal aliens. This is a testament to the failure of the conservative legal movement that still will not admit their mistake. For a fraction of the political capital they spent on so-called getting their guys, their a-holes on the courts, we could have easily delegitimized the power of the courts. There's a lot of people even on the left that are starting to talk like that. We could just shake hands. Let's take all political issues out of the courts. But no, we had to legitimize this even more. And now we're left with a rhino Senate, a rhino everything. Um, an administration that won't push back against the courts won't do anything, even the few things they decide to implement, any district court could shut down. And now we have a Supreme Court that not only will allow that to stand, but more often than not, will actually pour lighter fluid on it. Boy, I know that's a very depressing summation. But in order to know where we need to head, we need to know the truth. And there is no shortcut. Sometimes you've got to grab the bull by the horns and the American people can understand. Just like Roberts in one rare circumstance understood it in redistricting. Look, these are political issues. They don't belong in a court. It's very easy. It's very easy for Trump to say, how in the world could you have national security in a border and foreign nationals never been to the country get standing? People could appreciate that. How do you have a California judge rule on the border when 98% of them aren't coming to California. They've had a year to do this. Sometimes just speak the truth in a smart, intelligent, consistent way. You get in less trouble. I tell my kids that all the time. Just tell the truth. Again, I'm not, I'm not making excuses for what Roberts did. 
but it's like they act all guilty when they when they take lawful actions and they just play into the left's hands. So A, either play the judicial game right or start pushing back against the entire legitimacy of the judicial casino. Hope this was helpful. So much more, even on the courts, much less other issues I didn't get to, but I wanted to at least focus on these two cases. Send me your, your questions if there's anything further you want me to clarify on this. Till tomorrow, we'll see you again. Next week, I'm off in the, off fun in the sun, so I will, will be out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Can't wait. Hope you guys take a vacation as well at some point over the July 4th week. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 